This is the Wealth and Law Podcast, a podcast about the intersection of personal wealth and the legal landscape. We'll take a deep dive into relevant topics. We'll basically teach you what we know, and we'll engage with guests with deep expertise in their field. We hope that you'll enjoy this episode and many more episodes. So please join us on this journey as we try to bring you relevant information that is both timely and important for you to know in order to engage in this area of the world. Welcome to the podcast. I am Brent Nelson, and we have talked quite a bit on this podcast about trusts in general, what they are, how they work, and uh, we'll probably cover this topic many times in the future. So anybody who's not bored of it yet, trust me, you will be. But one of the things that comes up from time to time with trusts, particularly among married couples, is that when one spouse dies, some of these things become irrevocable, and then you have to ask questions about who's going to be in charge of them and how they're going to function. And to talk about that and so much more is my friend, TJ Ryan. TJ, thanks for joining me. Brent, it's always a pleasure to be here. So I appreciate it. Um, People might remember that you've been on the podcast before, but you have been on the podcast before, so people can go back and look you up from the last time you were on. But for anybody who has forgotten, uh, you are a a partner, a lawyer partner, not like an accountant partner or some other type of partner, like a real partner, a lawyer partner in the law firm Fraser Ryan Goldberg and Arnold in Phoenix, Arizona, and you do quite a bit of trust and estates litigation as well as estate planning, and so you kind of see both sides of it, and uh, that's handy for me because I try to stay away from the litigation, and I know that you like it, and so number one, I know you have a character deficiency, so we're going to try and work that out here, and number two, it's going to be helpful to have you talk about some of these conversations, which unfortunately sometimes lend themselves to litigation. Absolutely. Well, yeah, happy to be a repeat offender on the podcast, and and you're right. Um, I, I think sometimes we, we hear the term um, uh, participating partners with regard to lawyers and law firms, and, and I have the pleasure pleasure of being what they call the equity partner, which just means more stress and more paperwork. Right? Oh, nice. Yeah. So you're really lucky. You're really yes, lucky. Yes. But you, but you're right. There is a character flaw and that is that I enjoy the mental exercise of litigation. Um, I started as a litigator and, and it has continued through as much as I love the estate planning side of things. I find that, that knowing and understanding and seeing both sides of, of the planning elements of estate planning, as well as the litigation elements helps me bring a little bit more to the table um, than, than maybe somebody who isn't seeing and experiencing those fights, those the, yeah. the conflict, the um, disputes that arise, whether legal or psychological, that we run into in this practice. Mm -hmm. I think, uh, at least in my experience, you can correct me if you think I'm totally off base, but at least in my experience, litigation tends to be um, large part process. Somebody has to know the process, and there's a very specific process, and there could be very specific process related particularly to trust and estates that doesn't apply in other cases. And then number two, especially in trust and estates cases, managing personalities. Yeah. And yes. To the extent that's even possible. Well, I, I, I gave a CLE presentation for the State Bar of Arizona, oh gosh, probably two months ago now, uh, where I brought in a communications professor from ASU. And the entire conversation for an hour and a half was how to communicate with your clients and how to understand and interpret the actions and activities of opposing parties. Mm-hmm. With an eye towards an understanding that litigation, when it relates to estates and trusts, is a human endeavor. And we are dealing with, in some ways, an economic 
division of assets, right? So somebody dies and we take their estate and we're going to divide it up among people. But there's so much more psychology that plays into that. You know, if you if, if you are warring against your sibling, things that happened 20, 30 years ago become uh, they come to the forefront. And and those feelings and, and, you know, those unspoken expectations and those unresolved issues come bubbling to the top. So absolutely, mm-hmm. um, th- there's an element of psychology and management of human personalities uh, and and I will say mental disorders and defects that can be <laughs> you know part of unfortunately part of the the calculus um, and 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 people get caught in that process and I and there are folks who uh, I think take advantage of that unfortunately and turn yeah. litigation into a bully pulpit and and the ability or the chance to get back at their sibling or cousin or whatever it may be or more apropos to today's discussion against their step parent mm-hmm. right and um, uh, we see a lot of cases, uh, you and I would talk about them as stale trust cases where, um, <clears throat> you know, husband and wife are married. They set up one of these A-B trusts that's supposed to divide. And upon death of the first spouse to die, the surviving spouse does nothing. And, you know, in a normal uh, stand, what I'll call standard family situation or, or non-blended family situation, that's not a problem. They can fix that later. And a lot of times it doesn't have any adverse tax effects. But where you have the blended family, it becomes a big problem because assets that were supposed to be set aside for mom or dad's kids, whoever died first, end up flowing, you know, and and staying with the surviving spouse who might, I don't know, spend them all, give them all away, much mm-hmm. to the chagrin of the children of the deceased spouse. And, you know, I get a phone call that says, hey, we want to know where all the money went. And we end up spending a lot of time and energy and effort to uh, 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 sort of unscramble that egg, as they say. So, yeah. And you, you set that up pretty well just for anybody who isn't quite as familiar with the terminology. So a typical AB trust is a a trust that's either joint between spouses, which is more common in community property states, or it could be that both each spouse has their own separate trust, which would be more common in non-community property states. But basically what happens is when the first spouse dies, their assets sometimes get divided up, but sometimes entirely get added into an irrevocable trust. And that irrevocable trust is sometimes called a bypass trust, hence the B. And sometimes some piece of it or all of it could go into what's called a qualified terminable interest property trust or Q-tip trust, also an irrevocable trust. The Q-tip trust and the bypass trust play by slightly different rules. And so when you have a mixed family, the surviving spouse, if the surviving spouse is a beneficiary of one of these two trusts or both, could actually be playing by different rules under both the trusts. So with the Q-tip trust, you have to distribute out all of the income at least annually. That's the tax rule. And it can be the case in the Q-tip trust that more gets distributed out, not just the income. In the bypass trust, it can be the case that nothing has to be distributed out uh, out to the survivor. It can be totally discretionary. And so when you have these two different standards, if you have a mixed family who are going to survive the surviving spouse, you can start to understand how, how the trustee uses both trusts could affect the people who come next. How have you know how heavy handed they are in determining what is income, for example, can affect who the beneficiaries what the beneficiaries get at the end of the Q tip trust, or how uh, loose they are in making discretionary distributions from the bypass trust could affect how much people get in the future. And so the management, the trusteeship of these trusts become almost uh target practice for people who are coming in the future and aggrieved. Absolutely. Well, and you raise a really good drafting tip there, right? I mean, if we want to put a star and 
the the hypothetical highlighter lines right on this part of the podcast it's if you are drafting for the blended blended family blended family situation pay particular attention to your intent sections as you draft that the set lore or set lores expressly intend that this is how these two trusts should operate vis-a-vis one another. You know, should we focus on expenditure of the Q-tip trust, which is typical, right? We want to try to chew that down because that's exposed to estate taxes on the death of the surviving spouse. Or are we trying to protect against that and instead preferring to chew down the survivor's side of the trust, the revocable side, for the for the long-term benefit of the residuary beneficiaries of the Q-tip and the bypass. Um, another thing that I note that that um, draftsmen might overlook from time to time, and only because I've had a couple of these cases recently, and that is the application of the Uniform Principal and Income Act. And what guidance can you give your trustees in your document about what is income and what is not? And how do you draw that line? Right. I mean, the, the Uniform Principal and Income, or now it's, I'm sorry, it's now the revised Uniform Principal and Income Act, does a pretty nice job doing that, but it's somewhat generic. And if you have specialized assets, you know, um, my favorite example is timber, right? Uh, timber is, is dealt with per, very specifically. Oil and gas rights are, are treated very specifically. And so if you have a trustee that's not um, real dialed in on how to administer that, it could run, you could run into problems long term. So, so making sure that you give the trustee clear guidance is important there. As well, yeah, that's a good point. So if you have, uh, so if you have a bypass trust that says distribute all the income, sometimes that happens. Although that's not that uh, common. But then when you have a, a Q-tip trust where you have to distribute quote income, the income for this purpose is not income under the Internal Revenue Code. Right, it's income under this act that you're referencing, which almost every state has a version of, or, and it can be, it can be both. When I say or, uh, or what the trust document itself says. Because right. like most good acts, the principal and income act basically is the default rule. And so you can change the default rule in the document should you choose to do that. So, yeah, I think particularly where you're anticipating there could be issues with these types of determinations, then you want to be really clear if you can be on what you mean when you say income and how much discretion do you want to give say, the trustee, to make that determination in the future. Um, There's a little trick in our statute, and I don't think we're alone in the world, but we have this little trick that says a trustee of a trust that has to distribute all income can convert the trust into what's called a unitrust. And we say the unitrust amount has to be some number between 3 and 5%. And that means every year, 3 to 5% of the value of the trust assets, that'll be distributed out. That will be the, quote, income. And then the only open question after that is what assets of the trust get added into that calculation annually, and you can you can figure that out. And it can be a way to resolve this issue if, if, if the document, so let's say there was, there is an issue with what is income, how it's being used, and the document didn't anticipate this problem, and it's becoming an issue among the family. One somewhat clever way in our statute to fix it is just convert it into a unit trust, and then that can, to a degree, take the discretion out of the hands of the, tr- the trustee, although they're not entirely out of the, the fire, but it, it takes a little bit of that discretion out of their hands. But a trustee's gotta be very careful doing that. Um, I, I had a case recently where there was a, an effort made to suggest that we ought to convert an income trust to a, um, um, my mind just went blank, a, um, a unitrust. Unitrust. Gosh, yeah, it's been a long day. A total return unitrust. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, total return. 
That's total my returns. That's and my favorite phrase in the statute. Total return, you need trust. Like, total, total what does that even mean? Total return. You're going to get everything back? What, what is this? I don't know. It's the best deal ever. But, but it makes clear that there, there is trustee discretion to not do that, particularly if it doesn't fall in line with the settlor's intent. And in our case, the settlor had done a lot of really good um, pre-work with their estate planning attorney to talk about what his intention was. And this is, again, a blended family situation, irrevocable trust, with the children of the deceased party acting as trustees. So there's that natural tension that we're going to talk about, uh, you know, between how much are we, how much money are we, are we paying to stepmom um, versus retaining in the trust that ultimately will benefit the, the two children slash trustees. And in that case, we were able to go to the drafting attorney and get good, clear guidance on what the decedent's intentions had been and that his intentions were very specific about what he expected in terms of returns. And they, the, that intent did not fit with the statute. So the decision was made not to ultimately elect to convert to that unitrust um, based on the fact that it would have been contrary to the decedent's intent. And I think, you know, one of the things that, that again, trustees and the lawyers who advise trustees need to be paying attention to is just because the statute says you can doesn't mean that you should, right? Can and should are to two totally different concepts. And, uh, you know, our statutes, we refer to it as Title 14 um, for anybody listening outside of the great state of Arizona. Title 14 really really says very clearly at the beginning, settler intent is the thing, right? The intent of the decedent is where we have to start and really end a lot of our inquiries. And so we have wonderful statutes that allow us to do things like this, convert to unitrust, uh, among other things, decant, et cetera. But we have to be very careful that we're not running ramshod over trustee, and, uh, excuse me, over settler intent. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And that, uh, your comment about what can and what should be done and those being two different things is exactly right. I, actually, I think that leads very nicely into the real meaty topic then of who should be the trustee of these types of trusts. You, you just mentioned the kids being the trustees for the surviving spouse, so stepmom or dad. Maybe walk us through that. What, what are the issues in that sort of circumstance? Some of them seem obvious. And I think some of them are not as obvious. Absolutely. Well, when I'm meeting with estate planning clients, it's the natural predisposition to want to keep everything insular to the family, right? You know, I, I love my wife. My wife can be trustee. 90% of the time, 95% of the time when you're meeting with the non-blended, completely nuclear, kids from the same marriage family, uh, no problems with that, right? Because it is highly unlikely, and I say highly because it's not impossible, but highly unlikely that the, the children are going to pursue their own parents parents for a claim of breach of fiduciary duty. They're more likely to have a conversation with them, maybe suggest things. Um, and, you know, when we if we ever get to talk about things that happen later in life as people age, you know, there's that gray area when when mom and dad maybe shouldn't be managing the trust anymore. But that's a conversation for another day. Um, so most of the time, it's probably OK. Where where I raise questions are in areas where we have a blended family, number one. That's the biggest red flag, you know. Um, even if they were a blended family when the kids were very young, right, and, they, and the children have been raised together, you never know what sort of drama, emotional impacts, you know, uh, the psychology of that environment impacts people for a long time. And sometimes it's not apparent. It doesn't bubble to the surface until later. Um, death is really the great destabilizer. 
I saw it in my own family when my mother died prematurely, um, you know, going on eight years ago, and uh, it, it, it disrupted family relationships. And again, this was a nuclear family. My my mother, my mother, my father, my sister, but the relationship between uh, people in my family were, was disrupted. And so when you take that to a greater extent with the blended family, those dynamics shift and change very, very materially. So if you have, let's say, mom or dad in the driver's seat as trustee, to your point, uh, you know, they have a target on their back because now they have a responsibility, legal responsibility, not a familial one, not a social one, but a true legal responsibility. As soon as that trust, the bypass trust or the credit shelter trust, whatever you want to call it, um, or even the Q-tip trust, these irrevocable structures, once they become irrevocable, that's that that engages this legal process, right? And it, I shouldn't say process, but this legal framework that requires that person to do things. And they don't know, you know, nobody nobody graduates from college with the basics of trust administration, right? That's something that we don't even get in law school a lot. We have to learn it by doing it. Yeah. So that's so true. You know, you are putting mom or dad or Auntie May or, you know, Cousin Wilbur, whatever, whoever you pick in the firing line of being required to manage sometimes millions of dollars of assets, perhaps for their own benefit initially, and then for the future benefit of someone else, kids, grandkids, um, charities, you know, whatnot. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, yeah, there, there, there's there's more thought that's required. And, and those are conversations we do engage in. Absolutely. When we have that. Um, the other instance where I see it as important is when we have kids that are spendthrifts, when we have kids who might have struggled with psychological issues, addiction, um, you know, abusive behaviors, um, uh, antisocial behaviors, you know, things like that, criminal behavior, where we have those situations, we might want to add a buffer, right? We might want to have a situation where we have um, some distance between the management of the trust assets, the, the, the person who's going to distribute them, um, and the person who will benefit from them. And so in those instances, we'll have conversations about third-party management, and that takes on a lot of, of different uh, role, a lot of different um uh, options, right? Right, and that's there are there are, but there are conventional options in that in that respect, right? There's okay, so like the one that everybody thinks of is the bank, you know, the bank. Well, almost every bank has a trust department, and some banks are basically trust companies, like Northern Trust, that is a trust company that has a yep. bank attached to it, you know. So that's and I I usually try to when client because clients will ask me like, well, what are those options? And and I usually explain to them, think of all the big banks. They all have, they're all basically trust companies or they own trust companies. Then below that, there are what I sort of think of as more regional or kind of mid-tier, mid-market banks and trust companies. There happen to be um, a fair number of them in Scottsdale, Arizona, because it's a very wealthy place. And of course, they want to, all want to be there. And every wealthy place in the country has this like group of, it's not the same group, but it's a group of regional banks and trust companies. Yep. Something something below that is either somebody who's a, a professional, if that state allows individuals to act as a professional fiduciary, like a trustee, or it's basically friends, family, associates. Sometimes it's, it's professional advisors. You know, you're really starting to scrape for anybody who you think could be neutral and fill that role. But the thing that you just pointed out, which is just so, so true, and I, and I remind my clients of this, is that anybody you pick, who's basically not the bank and not a professional, they have a huge learning curve. Unless by a miracle, they have picked up the skill of how to be a trustee. They have an enormous 
learning curve ahead of them. And it likely means there's it, they're going to be more heavily reliant on advisors and they're going to be charging more advisor fees like lawyers and accountants uh, to get up to speed on how to run the trust, at least up front. And so sometimes because of that, the, the fees, even though the bank, for example, tends to charge a flat fee and maybe it's a little higher fee than the friend might charge the trust, because of the extra advisory fees, the fees tend to net out somewhat closely to each other. Not not in every instance, but under normal circumstances, it feels like they tend to net out uh, off of one another. And so there's just expense involved, regardless of which option you take. But if you want somebody who really doesn't have to go through that learning curve, you can't use a friend or family member. It just won't work. Right. There's there's almost another layer in there, or maybe two other layers. Mm-hmm. One, one is that I've I've run across recently these what I would call specialty institutions. Um, my favorite is the California uh, investment advisory firm who sets up the Reno Nevada based Nevada Trust Company. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and and I don't mean I, I shouldn't say that with such heavy sarcasm dripping off it because these are very useful solutions in the right case. Um, a lot of times they have really high minimums, right? The minimum amount of assets under management that they will require before they will take on a fiduciary engagement. Um, but they also come with a lot of resources and a lot of talent, right? Um, you know, you mentioned some of the big the big players in the market, Bank of America, um, Wells Fargo. Go um, Northern Trust. These are these are well established national organizations that have well oiled machines that they run in terms of their fiduciary management. Uh, and then you have you know you refer to the middle market. Then there's a specialty. Maybe they're on the same plane as middle market. The next layer that I would suggest to you would fall below the licensed professional, what we would call certified private fiduciaries here in Arizona, and that is the non certified professional. I have a lot of clients who, when I push back and say, yeah, it's probably not a good idea to have, you know, Aunt Aunt Vicky act as the trustee, right? Because, you know, it's nice that Aunt Vicky's really good at crochet, but maybe she doesn't understand the revised uniform, you know, uh, principal and income act so well, is to to name their trusted CPA who has done this work around this and has an idea of what is necessary. Um, they'll name the family attorney, right? Uh, I've seen that before. I- I've been asked by clients, will you serve? We make it pretty much a general rule that we don't serve uh, on behalf of clients with very limited exceptions. And that is, you know, family friends um, that we're doing work for. And in, the, in that case, you know, you write a very clear letter. Here's all the conflicting interests, blah, blah, blah. Um, but, you know, you can kind of in some ways dip your toes in both waters by having a professional who's not necessarily licensed, but the, with the licensed certified private fiduciaries doing that as a business model versus mm-hmm. someone who may have professional experience in the area um, and is not doing it as a business. They have other things to do. And and, and let me explain why I, I like this. <clears throat> someone who is a professional is going to want to spend the least amount of time really working on this project, getting it set up to where it will run itself. Right. So they are motivated and encouraged, hypothetically speaking, to try to get it on rails as quickly as possible so they can get back to their normal practice. Right. Now, are there exceptions to that? Yes. Have I seen it? Oh, absolutely. Um, I have seen professionals who were nominated and decided this looks like a good secondary income stream. Right. And um, you have to be very careful of that. So knowing who you are appointing is important. But I would submit there's another layer in there. 
of potential options if your client is convinced that they are trustworthy, honest people who are going to do the best for insert list of beneficiaries here. Right. Yeah. No, I, I completely agree with that. And I, you know, and I forgot uh, when I was going through my list, this sort of interim level, which is very true. And actually, some of the very large investment advisory firms out there um, have their own trust companies. So Charles Schwab has their yep. own trust company. Like most of the big ones have their own trust company. Fidelity Vanguard has a trust is company. another one. Yeah, Vanguard has a trust company. So yeah, there's a lot of options that are available for somebody who's in a circumstance where the family member or group of family members are just not the right people to do the job. So let me throw one other option at you. And that is, it could be possible for somebody who's just not comfortable totally cutting out the family. It could be possible to do what in our industry is called a bifurcated trusteeship. Um, sometimes it's called a directed trusteeship, where you could get one of these professionals or trust companies or somebody to basically stand and be like the title holder as the trustee, meaning and the trustee is the, the entity or person who actually owns the assets of the trust legally. So they own and control the assets of the trust. But then you could you could tear off of, of them a piece of the normal trusteeship and give it to somebody else. So, for example, the ability to make investment decisions or the ability to make distribution decisions. And you could give those decisions to some group of people that are not quite, let's say, a trust company or they're not quite like the trusted professional, but they might be a group that includes friends and families, or it might be a collection of family members, and they might have a limited role just to decide the investments or just to decide when distributions are going to be made. Of course, you'd have to think carefully about the composition of those groups or those people. But that's another way that I've seen this issue uh, address. I'll say address. It's really an attempt to address because there's no, you know, there's no like, uh, black and white rule on this works and that doesn't work, uh, but attempts to try to solve this riddle, which is a very tricky human behavioral psychology riddle. Uh, yes, um, that structure works well um, for a lot of people, actually. Um, and, and, you know, I was thinking as you were talking that another solution sometimes is if you are worried about one party going rogue, that you can balance them by having co-trustees, right? So that's another option. Uh, I have clients who have asked in the past, well, why don't we just have all three kids act as trustees? Well, I, I generally dissuade that, you know, because it's, well, you know, do you want to drive down the highway with three people each having their own steering wheel and, a, and brake pedal and, and gas pedal? Well, no, I mean, you, you're not going to get anywhere very, fa very fast. But it also goes back to, you know, settlers intent. What do you want to try to achieve? Um, you know, um, and one sort of a side thought is when we think about corporate trustees, we also I, I like to think about motivations. What, what are their motivations? And a corporate trustee is motivated externally by reputation. They want to be known as a good quality company. And so they will act accordingly to try to be that internally. However, they are motivated by generation of revenue. This is a business there. The way that the corporate trustees charge their fees, as you know, is what we call AUM, standing for assets under management. And there's typically a charge anywhere from, I've seen as high as 2.25% for the really expensive folks who provide a lot of, you know, sort of customized services and 
handling a lot of different various assets down to I've seen as low as uh, 50 basis points or half of a percent um, for more of the streamlined trustees, you know, um, but they are motivated by retaining assets. I mean, let's let's be clear. I think they would agree with this, but they're motivated by that. So when you are drafting trusts, intending for distributions to be made to beneficiaries, again, being very clear about your intent, what you want the trustee to do in terms of making distributions becomes even more paramount when you're dealing with corporate trustees because you want to give the beneficiaries a lever. If if your intent is to make sure that the, that the trustee is generous with the beneficiaries, say that, right? Um, that that they can make distributions over and above standard of living or anything, you know, like that. There's all these creative buzzwords that we as lawyers have come up with, you know, um, and be clear. Well, to, to be fair, the IRS came up with a couple of them, too. And absolutely, so we just parrot what the IRS says. Generally. Yeah. But, but that's a really good point. And this is the tax point, which is um, we use those, you know, that standard that you're referring to is the ascertainable standard, health, education, maintenance and support, you know, for making principal distributions to make sure that it that it qualifies as quote, a, you know, limited power of appointment. When you have a third-party trustee that's not a beneficiary, then we don't have those concerns, right? So um, we get, a, if there's another plus in the column of the third-party independent trustees, right, your corporate trustees, your banks, um, certified private fiduciaries, third-party non-family, uh, non-controlled uh, individuals, you know, the, 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 the professional lawyer who's also a private fiduciary, somebody along those lines, we don't have those concerns. So maybe, Brent, since since you're way better on the tax side of things, talk a little bit about sort of those that interplay. I think that's always uh, important for people to understand the differences there. Yeah, I mean, you you pointed it out exactly is that if if a beneficiary of a trust is also the trustee and they have total discretion to distribute out income or principal to themselves from an estate tax perspective, certainly the result of that is that when they die, everything that's in that trust will be included in their estate for estate tax purposes, even though they didn't really own what was in the trust. So it's like phantom, they're sort of phantom assets. And if you just give that ability, that unfettered discretion to somebody who is not that beneficiary and very likely not somebody that beneficiary controls, then this third party that is non-controlled can have that broad discretion and they can distribute money out for any reason under the sun, whatever they come up with. The standard tends to be pretty broad. I mean, health, education, maintenance, support, that's pretty broad already. And so it will we'll add in additional distribution authority for third parties where we really want to loosen it up and make it clear that the trust is there to be used. It's there. It's not there to be like a lockbox. You know, we're not going Al Gore on this. We're going, <laughs> you can get into it. Okay. You can actually use what's in there. And and in addition to that, and something we, we haven't quite touched on yet, well, you alluded to this. Sometimes what we'll do, we're talking along the lines of like, what is the intent? Sometimes what we'll do is we'll say, and we are telling you, trustee, that you are permitted to prefer certain beneficiaries over other beneficiaries. Yep. And so if there's any sort of tension between those groups, the one takes priority over the second. Because we, we know that if we don't say that in some instances, that second group, they'll cause the problems. Yep. And I want to throw one sort of factual reality at you, which I think is true and tends to come up in these sorts of AV trust scenarios. Okay. 
This has to do with the fact that people live a long time. So especially wealthy people. We're really, to be honest, we're talking about wealthy people. Wealthy people tend to live to like 90. Well, when you die at 90, even if you had kids late in life, they're 60. So you've got 60-year-old kids who've been waiting around for 60 years to sort of get their piece of the pie. And mom or dad who is surviving is spending the money. And I think people psychologically start to feel an urgency to get their hands on the money sooner. Or they start to feel a little panicked that like, well, it's going to turn out I'm so old that by the, and mom or dad is so old that by the time they die, there's going to be nothing left because they're so old. And that's just like a, a factual reality where one parent dies, they're already old when they die, and the money is not going out to the kids, and the kids are already old. They're like retirement age, and they're getting nothing. And I think some of those factual dynamics can be part of the underlying tension in some of these mixed families, especially when you have a younger surviving spouse. It's funny. I have a client who, uh, when I first met with him, and he's a huge joke, and uh, I said, tell me about your kids. And he said, well, I have one kid who does this. He's a professional. I have one child who does this. And these other two kids, well, they're waiters. And I said, oh, they're in the service industry, in a restaurant industry. industry." And he said, no, they're waiting for me to die. And I thought, yeah. that was, I thought that was that was pretty observant of him. Um, he's you know they're very wealthy. He sold a business and has uh, reaped the rewards. Um, uh, I just love that line. Um, to, to go back a little bit, I wanted to drop a footnote mm-hmm. when, we, when we talk about distribution schemes, right? And, yeah. and thinking of drafting, one of the things that I think is overlooked in a lot of draftsmen in their work is that tension exactly and to and take the time i think people should take the time to sit with their clients and say imagine you are gone and your kids are benefiting from this trust and you know insert large institution here is managing your millions or whatnot how generous do you want them to be do you want them to be tight-fisted, right? Do you want them to be tight-fisted forever? Do you want them to be tight-fisted until the kids are 50? Do you want them to be tight-fisted till they're 30? Like, you know, what what are we trying to encourage? And these are conversations I really enjoy because for clients that are engaged in it, they're 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 educational for them. They're instructional for us. And I find myself really digging in with with good clients in that way who want to talk about it and drive through and and really gather as much as we can so that we can structure and draft documents that are as close to what they want and will operate as close to what they want when they go. Because that's really our job as the draftsman, draftsman is to take their intentions, pull it out of their brains, put it in our notes, put it into a document, and then have them sign it. So that 30, 40, 50, 60, 100 years from now, when someone reads it, they can go, oh, this is what they want, right? I love it when I see documents that I get in my litigation practice that say, you can distribute principal. Not only can you distribute principal, but as long as you're an independent trustee, you know, that's the, the tax uh, mumbo jumbo. As long as you're an independent trustee, you can distribute the whole thing, the whole kit and caboodle, and you can you can pick the current beneficiaries over the remainder men, and you can tell those remainder men, go home, you know, you don't have anything to say here. Um, we've got a case in Arizona that, that supports this. Um, it's the In re Esther Kaplan Trust. I know about it because I argued it to the Court of Appeals. <laughs> And the, the discretion that was given to the trustee in that case was sole and absolute discretion, right? It was a third-party trustee, a bank, mm-hmm. 
And it said, you get to make distributions for the benefit of, in this case, it was an aunt. It was the sister of the decedent who lived in a very nice house, but was not all that wise with money and had gotten herself into some trouble. And so the bank was making a little bit more distributions to kind of help her out. And the remainder beneficiaries didn't like that for obvious reasons, right? They were dipping yeah. into money that the remainder beneficiaries saw as theirs. And so they they took it up to the court and the court said, hey, I mean, you know, trustee has discretion. It, it says right here in black and white, trustee has discretion. Well, they didn't like that outcome. And so they took it to the Court of Appeals and we shrugged our shoulders and said, hey, Court of Appeals, look, trustee has discretion. The Court of Appeals said, gee golly, yeah, the trustee has. <laughs> look at that. <laughs> look at that. You know, the language of the trust won. Um, so that was a fun case to litigate. But it brings home the point of the more you spend time thinking about your drafting, you know, now I'm speaking to the to the attorneys who listen, less so the clients, but, but, but also to the clients of, hey, tell your lawyers what you want. But, so both ways. But, you know, think about pulling out, really pulling rich intent data out of your clients. And as a client, express what you want in very clear terms and make sure that it gets into your drafts because mm -hmm. the more you can anticipate that conflict that could happen in the future by giving clear guidance, you can limit it or even avoid it altogether. Yeah, it's uh, it's a little bit of a balancing act, right? So it's a balancing act of um, people wanting to avoid that conflict and then people not wanting beneficiaries to be able to just get everything out of the trust and, and terminate the trust for any reason whatsoever, I I tend to err on the side of avoiding the conflict and and having loose standards of access to the trust. Also, because I think there's an there's also an element of um, of education that goes along with trust of convincing people that in fact the only benefit of a trust is not that it can distribute money. The benefit of a trust, or one benefit of the trust, of course, is that it can distribute money. That's if it has money to give. Of course, that's one. That's not the only one. The other thing that it is is an investment vehicle like anything else. It's just a bucket, and you can buy and hold almost anything in these things. And yeah. so, and as long as it's in the trust, it's protected from all sorts of nefarious characters, not just family members. And those sorts of educational components, I think, once people wrap their minds around that, then they start to realize, like, okay, even though we're going to have this loose standard, um, that doesn't mean that people are just going to take the money out of the trust if they're being smart about it. Hey, if they want to be dumb and take all the money out of the trust and just blow it, you know, usually my clients are going to be dead and gone anyways, and they'll have <laughs> no control over it at that point. But, you know, it's like you have to you have to sort of pick this battle, like this tension. Like you're saying, like between like, do we try to prevent people from fighting and that requires a looser standard or are we really trying to prevent people from taking money out, which could lead to the fighting. But there's a point of trying to preserve what's in that trust. And there's like I was trying to describe, there's no there's no black and white answer. That's part of what makes doing what we do fun. And, and this process like you're describing of trying to dig out the intent out of people's brains and then put it on page, on pages in a way that lawyers 100 years from now, when they read it, will understand it. And that's that's the got to be the hardest part of our job. Job, is how mm -hmm. do you translate that intent? You know, um, that I've seen trusts that are so wired tight that it's almost impossible to get money out of them. Mm -hmm. You know, that they say, oh, if you do this, you get a little payment. If you do that, and otherwise you're getting, you know, this amount of net income or whatnot. And I think to myself, you know, somebody, you know, either life and being plus 21 years or 500 years from now, depending on what the the, the perpetuities period is. Again, the perpetuities period being the 
the quote lifetime of the trust, depending on when it was established uh, with regard to Arizona law, at least uh, that somebody in the near in the distant future is going to be the beneficiary of this giant bucket of assets. And, and a lot of mm-hmm. times I wondered, did anyone ever talk to that client about the unintended consequences of locking up assets for, you know, a very long time? Right. I mean, as I said, Arizona is now 500 years and I have conversations with clients where I say, hey, you know, you can create a dynastic trust that with sufficient assets and, and proper management could last 500 years. And I get one of two responses. Oh, gosh, I don't want anything to last 500 years. <laughs> it's ridiculous. Like, no, nothing should last that long. And then I get the other response where it's like, oh, that's so cool. Uh-huh. Right? That my legacy would live on in name uh, and assets for 500 years. How neat is that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but, again, <clears throat> that's a piece of the – of the intent is what are they excited about and how do we draft for that? Um, so yeah, yeah, without, without blowing it up on un- un- in an unintended manner, you know, that, that tends to be the, the usual goal, notwithstanding what people might think, notwithstanding people who are in these fights might think I, the usual goal is not to blow things up yeah. unintentionally. Well, TJ, I really appreciate your time. Uh, I could talk to you about this endlessly um, <laughs> because I always learn something when I talk to you about these sorts of things, but I want to be, uh, respectful of your time. If people are trying to find you, how should they find you? Uh, sure. So our website is the name of the firm, Frazier, Ryan, Goldberg, and Arnold. Uh, it's the initials, so frgalaw.com. Um, and then our phone number is 602-277-2010. And Brent, I always love this. I, I told you the last time we did this how much fun I had and motivated me to even buy my fancy new microphone. So this nice. this episode is brought to you uh, at no paid remuneration from Blue Microphones, brought to you by, was it Logitech or Creative? Who makes it? Logitech. I, I'm honored that you have, <laughs> you have spotted them an advertisement for free on the podcast. <laughs> I can edit that out. I can edit it out. All right, TJ. Thank you so much. All right. Good to see you, pal. Hey, listeners. Thanks again for joining me on the podcast. It's fun to do it for you. If you're enjoying it, please subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to my blog at wealthandlaw.com and follow me on social media at wealthandlaw. I'll see you there.